The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Friends, let me invite you to uh, open up God's Word with me. We are turning to Matthew's Gospel today. Matthew, and you want to open to chapter 4. We are this morning beginning a new sermon series. We just finished in the month of September in four weeks, an overview of the Christian worldview where we looked at those essential aspects. And we're starting a new sermon series now in the New Testament. And we're getting back to our, our habit of expository preaching when we're moving uh, verse by verse and chapter through chapter through a book. Except this time we're not doing all of Matthew. We're going to be doing Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. So, for the foreseeable future, Lord willing, we'll be in Matthew's Gospel, 5, 6, and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. So, but turn to Matthew 4, because we're going to be looking at some introductory matters today. And as you're turning there, if you don't know the name of Alex Honnold, uh, you may perhaps know him for something of the legend that he has become. Alex Honnold, on June 3rd, 2018, became the first human being to make a free solo ascent of El Capitan in in uh, the National Park of Yosemite. 3,000 foot granite face in a free solo climb, meaning he did it without ropes. Okay, and they made a documentary about this called Free Solo. It's wildly entertaining and will keep you on the edge of your seat. Uh, But some called this the single greatest athletic achievement in human history. And the cool thing about the documentary is that the, the time it takes him to climb El Capitan is three hours and 56 minutes. That's it. But the documentary shows the months and months and years of practice and planning that he does to make his ascent. And all that to say, before we climb the mountain, you must prepare. And we are getting ready to ascend with Jesus that mount upon which he sat to give this wonderful sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. So we are going to be, this week and next week, doing something of setting up a base camp so that we can be prepared to scale this mountain with Jesus. And that's what we're doing in the next two weeks. And I'm going to tell you up front that our our plan, anyway, is to move through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, not looking at the forest collectively, but to look at the trees. The plan is to move slowly through the Sermon on the Mount. And as we do that, you'll see why that's necessary because of the amount of detail and truths that are here for us in God's word in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So if you've got your Bible open, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Great God, we bow before you and we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that you, by your spirit, carried along human authors by divine inspiration to record for us your word, your word that is a light to our path. And so, Father, as we go to Matthew's gospel and hear the words of your son, Jesus, may they be words that rest upon our hearts and souls in a way that find good soil and bear fruit to the glory of your name. Illuminate our minds and give understanding to our ears today as we come to your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And hear now God's word, beginning at Matthew 4 and verse 17 through Chapter 5, verse 12. This is the word of God. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And I invite you to turn back to Matthew 4. And like I said, we'll be in this text this morning in preparation for our studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and you've got an insert there uh, in your bulletin that will help you as we ask three questions as we approach the mount that Jesus sits on to teach uh, this sermon, so famously called the Sermon on the Mount. And the three questions that we're going to be asking to orient us toward a proper understanding of this text are, first of all, why, why this text? What's, why are we coming to the Sermon on the Mount? And then second, what is it that Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the big picture of Matthew's gospel, but also in the big picture of all the Bible? What is going on in this famous sermon? And then finally, how does the Sermon on the Mount apply to us? And so, Lord willing, we'll see these three things in preparation to approach the Sermon on the Mount. And again, uh, with, a, with a text so significant as this, it would be a disservice to rush on up without planning, uh, which is why we must sit at the base of the mountain and prepare to climb today by orienting ourselves with these questions. So first, uh, why this text in general? Right? Why, why are we coming to the Sermon on the Mount now in the next sermon series after having uh, gone through the Abrahamic narratives in Genesis, taking a pause in a topical sermon series on the Christian worldview, now moving into the New Testament? Why the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's not an exaggeration to say that the Sermon on the Mount might be one of the most well-known portions of Scripture. If John 3.16 is the most well-known single verse of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount might be collectively the most well-known or at least recognizable portions of all of the Bible. 
Uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are just 111 verses, but they make up and include what is maybe the most deeply loved and also the very often misunderstood words of our Lord Jesus. What I find interesting is that those who approach the Bible uh, from a more secular worldview, who see the Bible as nothing more than just a document, even secular folks who don't have faith in the Lord Jesus love the Sermon on the Mount. It is widely popular amongst all people. Consider the fact that famous British atheist Richard Dawkins is the one who wrote the book The God Delusion, has declared that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And you oftentimes hear people say that. You know, Jesus is pretty great, and I recognize and honor him for being a great moral teacher. And usually, the reason why people who are not Christians still acknowledge Jesus as a good moral teacher is usually because of the content of the Sermon on the Mount. That's usually what people are familiar enough with that point to Jesus' praiseworthy morals and then say he's a good teacher. This is where, of course, Jesus says, do unto others and turn the other cheek. And these are seen as ethereal visions of utopian morality that are good. And so we praise Jesus because he's a good teacher. But it's often just with token respect for Jesus' words, not with a faithful appreciation for them. If you want an example of that, you look no further than Thomas Jefferson, who said of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Thomas Jefferson said that the Sermon on the Mount is the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered in human history. He wrote that in a letter to John Adams, the same letter in which Thomas Jefferson describes his process of literally cutting up the New Testament to cut out the portions that he didn't like and leave the portions that he did. And he was left with a Bible that was only 46 pages long. And he said, what I have now is the diamonds among the dunghill. He liked the Sermon on the Mount, but he didn't like the other stuff. So it is possible to isolate the Sermon on the Mount or even perhaps hold it over against the other writings of the New Testament to suggest somehow that what Jesus says here is more significant and of greater consequence than, say, what Paul says in Romans. As if to say that there are portions of God's Word that are more important than others. Some of you may be familiar with the fact that that was definitely the case uh, in the middle 20th century when the Sermon on the Mount really became something of a battleground dividing the tradition of Christianity between a more modernist and liberal progressive approach and a conservative orthodox approach. It was the distinguishing feature of 20th century Christian liberalism to say that if you wanted to define the gospel, the gospel is the Sermon on the Mount. And they suggested that the Sermon on the Mount was the controlling ethic of life, not just of Christian life and Christian community, but all of life and all of society to suggest that the church's primary message and the church's primary role is to transform the culture. And the byproduct of that was called the social gospel, which bred a movement of Christian liberalism in America that said the Sermon on the Mount is what matters and that's the gospel, don't worry about other things. And their message was that the gospel is not about salvation from sin in Jesus Christ. It is about transforming society. Now, to be clear, are there social applications in the Sermon on the Mount? Absolutely. Is the transformation of society the gospel? No. That's not 
what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. But when you start asking the question, what is the Sermon on the Mount and what is it for, as people have been doing forever, you're asking interpretive questions. What will you do with the Sermon on the Mount? How will you understand it? What does Jesus mean when he talks about plucking out the eye and cutting off the hand? What does he mean when he encourages us to have our other cheek struck when the first one has been struck? What does it mean to let the left hand not know the generosity of the right hand? What do these words mean? And because we have to ask those questions, we are asking then interpretive questions. What is Jesus doing? And why is it so divisive among people to try to understand the Sermon on the Mount? So when we're asking the question of why, we are studying the Sermon on the Mount because... For as deeply loved as a text as this is, it is so often misunderstood. And so as we approach the mount and walk the pathway together, we want to make sure we're staying on the right path so that we don't take Jesus' words and twist them to mean something that he did not mean. We need to see not only what Jesus says, but what he means. And because this is so deeply loved, we need to understand it. So that's the answer to why. With more biblical text detail, let's also ask the question, what is going on here? What is the Sermon on the Mount and what is Jesus doing? First of all, I've said it several times already that the Sermon on the Mount is the content of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And its major features include what we read this morning, the Beatitudes, the Blessed sections. It also includes Matthew's instruction on the Lord's Prayer, as well as several other uh, teaching content portions in chapter 6 that are very, very well known. And the reason why it's called the Sermon on the Mount is because in chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, it says that Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down to teach. Now, Jesus never says... Hey, everyone, I'm getting ready to give you my Sermon on the Mount. It's just called that by inference, and it actually, that title wasn't used until about the 4th century by the church father, Augustine. So the fact that our Bibles call it the Sermon on the Mount is somewhat superfluous. It's just that because Jesus goes on a mount to teach. But on that mountain, he's doing something very, very significant. Jesus is explaining the beginning of what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus and to be a citizen of his kingdom. If you think about what Matthew's gospel has been about so far, you can just flip through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and there you'll see this sweeping summary, chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel is Matthew's genealogy in which he connects Jesus Christ to King David to say that Jesus is Israel's king. In chapter 2, you have the birth narratives and the famous wise men, the magi, who are coming to visit the one who they believe to be Israel's king. And so you have this emphasis on kingship in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 3, you find uh, Jesus uh, being baptized and the declaration that this is the Christ. And then in chapter 4, his temptation, where he withstands the temptation of the devil so that he might be the king to lead the true people of Israel into righteousness. And so there is this emphasis here about kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Jesus is the king. And when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, you see it in chapter 4, verse 12 and following, the first public words of Jesus are found in chapter 4 verse 17 that we started to read 
which is what? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And also in chapter 4, verse 23, we saw that Jesus moved throughout all Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Kingdom is such an essential aspect of knowing what the Sermon on the Mount is doing because the primary message of Jesus' earthly ministry and the primary organizing principle on the Sermon on the Mount is this same reality, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And that is something that puzzled people then and that is something that continues to puzzle people now because when Jesus came, saying the kingdom is at hand and preaching about the kingdom, when the Jewish ear heard the word kingdom, they heard geopolitical realities. They heard political kingdom, geographic kingdom. Their expectation was that the Messiah would come and that he would be a military and political leader to deliver Israel from Roman occupation and then set up a powerful earthly Jewish kingdom that would lead the world. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, this is a constant point of contention and division because from the very beginning, Jesus says, it is my kingdom, but it is a kingdom of not earth, but heaven. You often see the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God used interchangeably, but the point is, is that God's kingdom stands in contrast to these expectations of a physical, geographic, political kingdom The kingdom of heaven is essentially internal and spiritual rather than external and physical. You need to mark that down in terms of remembering what the kingdom is about. It is primarily internal and spiritual, not external and physical. So when Jesus announces in chapter 4, verse 17, and in chapter 4, verse 23, when he announces the kingdom, the kingdom is the rule and the reign of God. To belong to the kingdom is to be one in which God reigns over. The kingdom is something primarily within us. It is that which governs the heart and controls the mind and defines the ethic and the morality. Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom and he says the kingdom is at hand and the kingdom is here because he's the king. And the king is here, and the king is bringing his kingdom. Where he is, there his kingdom is present. And the reason why this is so often a difficult aspect to grasp is because we speak of the kingdom being here and a reality, but also a reality that is not fully present yet. We speak of the kingdom being already and not yet. And the best metaphor that I could think for this is a historical illustration. Everyone is able to identify that D-Day, June 6, 1944, was the turning point of World War II. Effectively, the Allied forces were able to make such an advance that the war shifted. But it wasn't until a year later, VE Day, with the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany to the Allied forces, that the war was over, in a sense. But the back was broken on D-Day, but the consummation of the victory was later. In the same sense, Jesus' victorious resurrection is as D-Day to the kingdom of this world. And the final consummation of that kingdom 
is going to come on the day of his glorious appearing. And so we can speak of the kingdom as a, an already existing spiritual reality that Jesus has inaugurated through his death and resurrection. But a kingdom that is yet to be fully consummated until he returns again. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is saying, this is what it means to be a part of this kingdom. The kingdom is here. Let me tell you what it means to live in it. Let me show you what life looks like. He is calling his disciples and explaining to them, this is what it means to live in my kingdom. You see in chapter 5, verse 2, that he opened his mouth and taught them. And the them is, back in verse 1, his disciples. Jesus is principally addressing those who were already following him, saying, let me explain what it means to truly follow me. So, the Sermon on the Mount is not, therefore, just ubiquitous general principles for all society. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Words to his disciples, the word of the king to his people. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. In general, we'll see that more in detail as we move throughout, but then finally let's ask the question, what what is this doing and, and why, why are we doing this in the sense of application? What is this for? What does the Sermon on the Mount do for us? And I just listed three things there for you to remind you of. Why should we study the Sermon on the Mount? The first of all is because of the preacher. The one who is preaching the sermon. Who is the one who is preaching this sermon? This child who we find in Matthew 1 and 2 is the one who enters onto the scene of human history and all history stops to pay attention to this one. That kingdoms of the earth are moved at his birth to come and worship him. This is the child who grows up to command obedience and announce a kingdom. And when this king speaks, people ought to listen and obey and heed the word of this king because he is Emmanuel. You remember that? God with us. In Matthew, several different times through the first several chapters, Jesus is identified as Emmanuel, the Christ, the Son of God. If there is anyone in the world to which you should stop everything that you are doing and listen to, it's Jesus. What does he have to say to you and in his own divine mind, it is this sermon that is of utmost importance at the very beginning of his ministry. And what that means then is that we must, as the disciples did, sit at his feet and listen to him and learn from him and learn of Jesus. I want you to understand that no matter how much you already know about Jesus, no matter how much you already understand, whether great or small, you need to know more. You need to know more of Jesus. You need to know more of his character and of his will and of his kindness and of his patience and of his teaching and of his purpose. You and I need more of Jesus. And the preacher of this sermon is one of whom we must sit at his feet and learn. Secondly, this applies not only so we might know Jesus, but also so that we might know the gospel more clearly. Now here is a very, very significant point that will help protect you 
from a misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount. And so pay careful attention here. Because the kingdom that Jesus calls you to is spiritual and not natural, the kingdom that Jesus calls you to is spiritual and not natural, and that means Jesus is not calling you to do this on your own. When he commands to you, when he speaks to you, he is not calling you to do this stuff on your own. He is not encouraging you to pursue righteousness on your own apart from Jesus. And if you're not aware of that, consider how rigorous the Sermon on the Mount is. Now, just very quickly, you should ask yourself the question. When you read the sermon, and I hope you will be reading the sermon regularly. It only takes about 10 minutes, 5, 6, and 7. Read the Sermon on the Mount regularly, but ask yourself the question, can you do this? If you get angry, Jesus says you've murdered in your heart. It is not just adultery physically, but in the heart through lust. If you do anything other than turn the other cheek, if you don't love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, if you are not perfect, the Sermon on the Mount crushes you. If you attempt to do this in your own strength, there are over 50 commands here in 111 verses, and the response to this isn't for you to try as hard as you possibly can to obey everything that Jesus has said. And the answer is also not to dismiss it and say, why bother? The Sermon on the Mount communicates this reality, that to enter the kingdom and to be a Christian requires a new birth. It requires that you be a spiritual person, not just a natural person, because the natural person cannot do these things and will not do these things. You did not bring yourself into this world. And you cannot bring yourself into God's kingdom. It's a work of grace to see and understand and enter the kingdom, which is exactly what Jesus said in John 3, isn't it? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount tells you that it requires spiritual birth, spiritual new life to see and apprehend this. The Sermon on the Mount calls us to pure righteousness that flows from a heart that has been awakened by sovereign grace to cling to Jesus as our hope and not to our self-righteousness. And the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that all along. It would not make sense for you to fuel your car with sand. And attempting to pursue obedience to the Sermon on the Mount in your own strength is akin to fueling your car with sand rather than the fuel it needs in order to operate. And you as a Christian believer apart from the Spirit of God cannot operate. Finally, not only the preacher, not only the gospel, but also the Sermon on the Mount shows us what it means to be a Christian. The Sermon on the Mount is not fundamentally Listen to me very carefully. The Sermon on the Mount is not fundamentally about how you get into the kingdom. It is about how you live in the kingdom. It's not about how you can complete a checklist to enter, but rather what life looks like as a Christian disciple. What life looks like inside the kingdom. It's not a checklist. Jesus is saying, let me teach you how to live in my kingdom. It is a description of the character of a Christian disciples, not a code of ethics for you to check in order to be qualified before God. And so we should listen to Jesus and strive to obey him, not to be good enough to get in, 
but in response to grace, in thankfulness, obey the king. So, as you read, as you listen, I want to encourage you to avoid two ditches on the side of the road. There's one pathway through the Sermon on the Mount, and there are ditches on either side that I want you to avoid. The first one is a foolish optimism that says, I can do this. I can do this all in my own strength. That would be foolish on one side, but it would also be foolish to enter into hopeless despair. I can never do this. I can do this all in my own strength, or I can't do any of it, so I'll do none of it. Both of those are the wrong response. The gospel offers a third way that says, Jesus has brought you into his kingdom by virtue of his death and resurrection and endowed you with the spiritual power to live as a genuine Christian disciple. This is what it looks like to live as a genuine Christian disciple. If in a moment of arrogance and self-reliance, you think that you can ascend to this heights all of your own, then the gospel and the Sermon on the Mount gives you to your arrogant and proud heart, a word of grace that says, no, 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 this isn't about you. And when you, traveling down the pathway of Christian discipleship, feel so burdened that you say, it's too much, who can do it, I'll just quit, the gospel and the Sermon on the Mount brings you out of that ditch and say, no, let me give you strength to press on in obedience. It's about walking this road. It is Jesus' words leading us to the gospel of his grace where there is mercy for the proud and grace for the sinner. And how should you respond? Just as a final word, flip to the very end. Flip to the very end of Jesus' sermon. Go to Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus finishes, he finishes this sermon, and it says in Matthew 7, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were amazed because the king has come the king has announced his kingdom and spoken his authoritative word. Jesus, throughout this whole sermon, is going to invite you to no longer teeter upon neutrality. There are only two options with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says there are two roads, two kinds of trees, two different ways to call him Lord, two different kinds of builders on two different kinds of houses, on two different kinds of foundations, and it is a constant application that Jesus is saying to you, this is the way I'm calling you to. Will you follow? And if you will, this is what it looks like to walk as a Christian. But there are only two roads. Only two options. Jesus says, come and follow me. This is the way of life. So we'll be learning this together over the coming weeks and months. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your word you reveal to us your son who calls us into his kingdom, your kingdom, the kingdom of life and immortality and hope and the forgiveness of sins. Lord, as we now prepare to approach your table Help us to do so hearing the call of Jesus to come and repent of our sins, to come and lay hold of Jesus with all of our trust. So Lord, help us to hear your word and obey it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church 
or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.